Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. So I'm excited, particularly excited tonight. So this represents back-to-back conversations with authors that have recently released books. And I think this is probably the first time uh, in the broadcast that so closely to a book being released that uh, the author is here with us. And so I'm pleased and excited to talk to um, someone who has just released a book, if I'm not mistaken, just this past uh, Tuesday, uh, and and uh, the book is about change. And uh, so I'm just excited to jump right in, uh, a best-selling author of other books and a uh, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, and on and on. So um, I'm glad to have and introduce to you uh, Brad Stolberg. Welcome, Brad. Dr. Perkins, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, well so glad to have you, and congratulations on getting that book out. I know um, the labor that is required to do that, so um, congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, launching a book, uh, it's work. I feel like I'm in the middle of uh, printing a 5K launch week, yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm really excited to be here live with you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so good to talk to you, and particularly because I have a number of of listeners that are in leadership. I, myself, I'm a faculty member at uh, Columbia University in a department um, of organization and leadership, and really important to the study of organization and leadership is understanding change and understanding. Uh, the change process and leadership role in change. And so your new book, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, including you, is really exciting to discuss. So I, um, I also am, I was privileged, uh, thank you so much for sending an advanced copy to me to review before our conversation and, and, and scheduling so close to your release. Uh, I, I feel privileged to have had the opportunity to do that and to discuss it uh, just so fresh off of the, the, the press, so to speak. So, um, so before we get into talking about the, um, the book itself, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you started with what you is this area of talking about change and sustainable excellence. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you got here. I grew up an athlete, and um, I was always really dedicated to, uh, to performance. You know, my genetics were okay, but uh, they weren't world-class, so I, I had to work for every inch. And really, from a young age, I was just fascinated by what people can do to, to get better in a sustainable way. Um, but I was also a nerd. I'm probably in the history of my school, the only uh, the only high schooler that was the captain of the, the varsity football team and also a four-point student. 
So throughout my life, I kind of just combined and carried these two interests of, of high performance on the one hand and just deep intellectual thinking, reading, discussions, wrestling with topics on the other. And um, that took me to McKinsey and Company for a couple of years where, like many young consultants, uh, I burnt out. I didn't have enough restraint, and um, I really worked myself into a, a pretty rough spot. And it was at that point that I became interested not just in excellence, but what I call sustainable excellence. So um, how can we push and get the most of ourselves for the long haul? And um, this is almost 20 years ago now. And uh, since then, I've kind of over a circuitous path pivoted a couple of times. And for the last decade, I've been coaching elite performers on sustainable excellence and researching and writing about the topic. That's awesome. I I can identify a lot with what you're saying. Uh, and and I, I'm just fascinated. I know you have a, another book that I could invite you back to talk about, The Practice of Groundedness and peak performance, but often I find myself talking to um, both my students and clients about excellence and that the, what it takes. Uh, when, I was in, when I was in college, I was a part of, uh, I was in the band, and where I went to school, the band was a really big deal. And mm-hmm. I remember the very first time that we went to um, we, when, I, when I was a freshman and I showed up that summer for band camp, we were the only students there uh, late July. And, and so I remember thinking, like, what in the world, why are we here in Louisiana in 100-plus degree weather, and even the football team isn't here? But shortly thereafter, when we showed up um, and practiced really hard, uh, that very first time of stepping out on the field, I realized what it was about that made the difference in terms of excellence and showing up and being and practicing for uh, a performance. So I, I can definitely identify with that. And, and you know, just kind of likewise identifying with where you are now, um, writing and talking about change because it is so important to especially where we are as a society now. So many things are changing at exponential rates. And so um, I'd love to jump in and, and talk a little bit about um, this, you know, your, your new book where you're talking about how to excel. Uh, what, what is it that you think the, it, the secret is, if you will, or the, the secret sauce around excelling when everything else is changing? I got two main theses or theses in the book, Dr. Perkins, and I'll, I'll quickly touch on both, and then you can decide um, which thread you want to pull. Yeah. The first is the kernel of the idea that became the book happened early on in the pandemic. I distinctly remember I was in my kitchen on my wife's iPad, skimming the news, left, right, center, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Economist, it didn't matter. All of these big publications were running stories about when are we going to get back to normal. And there was something about that that just rubbed me the wrong way. And I didn't know what at the time, but those words, back to normal. And um, I remember going to Google and just putting in, why do people think about getting back to normal when it comes to change? Uh, and this term homeostasis came up, which many of your listeners are probably familiar with. I learned about this in school, way back in high school. And homeostasis, 
essentially says that systems like stability, and when instability happens, it's a bad thing, and they try to get back to where they started as fast as possible. So homeostasis describes the change cycle as a pattern of order, disorder, back to order, and it says that change is bad and stability is good. And homeostasis was coined and discovered in 1865, and for the last 150 to 170 years, it has been the prevailing model for how we think about change. More recently, however, the research community, particularly in biology, they've stepped back and they said, actually, homeostasis is not a good model for thinking about change. And when you look at really thriving, healthy individuals, organizations, even entire cultures, you find that that cycle is a little bit different. It's not order, disorder, back to order. It's order, disorder, reorder. So, yes, we uh, create stability, but that stability is somewhere new. And uh, they coined this term allostasis. Uh-huh. And I think the, it, the etymology of these two words tells the whole story. So, homeostasis comes from the Latin root homo, which means same, and stasis, which means standing. So, it says stability by staying the same. Uh-huh. Whereas allostasis comes from the Latin root allo, which means change or variable, and then stasis which means we stay stable through change, or we stay stable by changing at least to some extent. And whereas homeostasis says that change is something to resist, something that happens to you, allostasis says that change is something that you are in an ongoing conversation with. Mm -hmm. So the first big thesis is we've got to get out of this homeostasis mindset and adopt more of an allostasis mindset. We're Mm -hmm. always in conversation with change. Yes, we as individuals, yes, organizations, we do thrive with stability, but the way to achieve stability is through change. And that's got such an elegant double meaning. If you want to be stable right, through change, right. you got to change, at least to some extent. Yeah. You would know yeah. better than me, but in organizational research, we talk about freezing, unfreezing, refreezing. And that's yeah. one model for thinking about organizational change. So this shows up across disciplines. And then the second main thesis in the book is this construct that I call rugged flexibility. And I essentially argue that in order to navigate those cycles of order, disorder, reorder, we've got to be both rugged and flexible. And people normally think of these two words as opposites, right? To be rugged is to be strong, to be robust, to maybe even be a little rigid. To be flexible is to be soft, to be supple, to bend without breaking. And when I went out and I reported on hundreds of high-performing individuals and organizations, and when I looked at the literature, became very clear that those that excel during change, they're not rugged or flexible, they're rugged and flexible. Mm. So those are the two big central ideas in this book. Well, you, you actually touched on, in both of those, you touched on something that I, I remember thinking, he really likes contradiction. <laughs> when you think about <laughs> the, the thing that you did when you talked about change and stability in the same breath, and then you talked about ruggedness and flexibility in the same breath as well. And I thought it was brilliantly done, but particularly around, you know, the more, the, the, the more I study this, the more I see where physical systems in our, in our world and our universe uh, often parallel social systems and where you can, you can think about those. And that's something my, my background and training is in chemistry and toxicology and then leadership. And so a lot of the ways that I think about uh, problems and issues that come up in organizations 
interestingly, is is really grounded in physical science. And it's just amazing how uh, the frameworks fit and work in, in the social structures as well. Um, so I would like to go uh, first to where you, you started talking about this allostasis and, and change because a lot of people uh, are afraid of change and for good reason that the brain is not wired for change. The brain, if we you know, look at what all the brain research tells us, is that it's about keeping things the way it was because it's a survival technique. If I survived yesterday doing it this way, I want to do it the same way so that I can be here tomorrow. And, and so, so thinking about how people really resist change, um, I, I'd love to hear you talk about it. So the, the, what, what are the strategies you get to employ to get people to understand the uh, allostatic uh, um, dynamic? Yeah, well, you know, you're a man for my heart, Dr. Perkins, because I'm going to go to one of the most grand, magnificent, empirical instances of change that we've ever put our finger on, which is very natural, evolution. And uh-huh. in evolutionary science, evolutionary biologists, they look at these species that thrive for long periods of time. And what they find is they have these two core components. It's a contradiction again. They have central features, which are attributes that make the species what it is. These are the things that if they change too much, then the species would no longer be recognizable. And they hold on to those central features very tightly. But then on everything else, they're willing to adapt. And I think the same is true for us as individuals and for organizations. So as an individual, I think it's real important to have your core values, right? The things that you really aspire toward that make you who you are, the things that you care about, and to hold on to those. But when the environment around you changes, to be creative in how you apply them and to apply them really flexibly. So I think it's about like having this rugged DNA of who you are, but then being so flexible in how you apply it. And I tell two stories in the book. One is of an individual, one's of an organization. So I'll start with the individual. It's the tennis superstar, Roger Federer. Mm-hmm. And Roger Federer, greatest tennis player of all time, but also known for his longevity in the sport. He was dominating a sport late into his 30s, where most people, they, they, their, their careers are peaking between age 28. Maybe if they're lucky, they get to 30. So not only was he a dominant athlete, but he, uh, he excelled for such a long period of time. But what lots of people don't realize about Roger Federer is that he had a really tricky rough patch starting at age 33. And between mm. age 33 and 36, he didn't win a single major championship. He was dropping out of tournaments that he once would have won. And the whole tennis community said, you know, age has finally caught up with Roger Federer. He's done. But during those three years, Federer completely remade his game. So it's true. He was aging. Like, that was the change that came for Federer. It's the change that comes for all of us. He couldn't escape it. But he learned this one-handed backhand, which slowed down the speed of the ball. He started playing at the net more to shorten points so he wouldn't have to run the baseline with these fast, younger athletes. Uh-huh. And he even gave up the, the racket that made him the best player of all time 
for a new racket, something that for a pro tennis player is sacrilegious to give up your racket, but he wanted a racket with the new technology that all the young kids were using. So what didn't change, Federer's core values, competition, love of the sport, and excellence. But how he applied those, he was so flexible on. And the result is at age 37, Federer won two major championships and had the best record of his career. Mm. So I think that's just such a beautiful example of an individual going through an evolution process where they hold on tight to what they value, but then they're really flexible. And then the organizational example I give is the New York Times. So as everyone knows, it's been really tough for newspapers the last two decades. Yet the New York Times has grown astronomically as a business and their newsroom and their editorial staff. And how did the New York Times do it? Well, it's simple. They had their core values which are about good reporting, finding stories no one else is telling, integrity, craftspersonship, excellence. But you know what their core value wasn't? It wasn't the written word on print paper. So New York Times now, their majority of their readership is in three places. It's online, it's in their newsletter, and it's not even readership, it's their podcast. Mm-hmm. So they held mm-hmm. on to their core essential values, but how they applied it was very flexible. And I argue in the book, that's what's allowed the New York Times to excel at a time that's been really hard for other newspapers. So I think it's a long-winded answer to your question, Dr. Perkins, that I think the way through these cycles is to latch on to our core values, the things that make us who we are, the things that really do provide an anchor. In my framework, these are our sources of ruggedness and to know what those are, but then to be so flexible in how we apply them. Oh, absolutely. And thinking about organizations, um, Right now, universities are faced with some challenges, uh, as we, we're hearing, but schools and learning. I think about one right now that we are, we are talking about, and you can turn on almost any news channel, and in any cycle, you're going to hear the words chat GPT, right? It's almost That's right. every day. It's ubiquitous. Some, yes, and every day there's a story. And so you hear in some, some segments you're going to hear where people are talking about what, what, what risk it poses to the way we live and then others about opportunities. And I think it's important to do both. And I think that's where I hear where you're talking about the adaptability piece where there, you, you see things for what risks they have, inherent risks, but also what opportunities as well. And, and change, although uh, uncomfortable at times, uh, can be very risky if not done in a, in a very planful or intentional way. But, um, but also there are so many opportunities in it as well. That's right. And these are, you know, some changes we don't have a choice. So I would argue a new technology like artificial intelligence, um, that ship has probably left the station or that train has left the station. So will there be regulatory regimes that hopefully occur? Absolutely. But for organizations like universities, like it's going to be a technology that's here. How it manifests, who knows, but you're 100% right. Like the, the, the resisting it, or the giving up all agency and just saying, like, whatever happens, happens. Like, both of those, to me, are not very skillful. I think it's around figuring out how you can skillfully participate in the change, how you can try to shape it for an outcome that you want, um, and also how you can respond, not react. So 
reacting is really rash. It's emotionally driven. It's hot. Uh, it's instinctive. And we often tend to regret reacting. Whereas when we respond, we're effortful, we're thoughtful, we use our prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of our brain, uh, and we tend to be much more wise. So I think when anything happens, whether it's something as trivial as your dog vomits on the ground when you're getting your kids off to school or you get stuck in traffic or your computer Zoom doesn't work before a meeting, all the way to big changes, you know, retirement, promotions, layoffs, new technologies impacting an organization, if we can try to get into a mode where we're responding, not reacting, it gives us a better chance to really engage with the change skillfully. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do, though. You know, easy, easy to intellectualize, hard to practice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's so many uh, places where uh, people have these opportunities to, to change but resist. Oh. And 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 fail to see or, or fail to real to, to actually realize opportunities. And there was one one place in the book that I talked about, and I forget how you put it, but it was it was about uh, basically recognizing when you um, recognizing uh, when it's time to ask for and receive help. Um, in in this process. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, there are times when you can do all the right skillful practices around change, and it still feels overwhelming. And I would argue that nobody, even the most average human existence, nobody escapes life without having some of these circumstances. These could be a really terrible health prognosis. Uh, They could be an unexpected loss of a job uh, and then loss and grief. And these are big changes that, again, nobody escapes. And when these things happen, I think it's so important to, yes, if you can use tools to help, do so, but don't pressure yourself into needing to find meaning right away or needing to be optimistic. Just focus on getting through. Because what the research shows really clearly is it is true that we do tend to grow and make meaning, even from harrowing changes, but it always happens on the other side. It doesn't happen when you're in the thick of it. When you're in the thick of it, the name of the game is just being kind to yourself, showing up, and getting through. And the number one quality of resilience that helps with that is reaching out for social support and getting help from other people. So there's this misnomer, right, that resilient people, it's like an individual thing. It's not at all. Resilience is really about having social support and being willing and able to ask for help to get through those cycles. You know, back to that initial premise, right? Order, disorder, reorder. Sometimes yes. when the disorder is so overwhelming and so hard, well, you ask for help. And what's fascinating to what you said earlier about looking to the natural sciences, um, this, is what a, this is what an animal will do, or even at a species level. When there's a big environmental shock and they don't have the resources on their own to get through, they borrow resources. So mm-hmm. it's just the nature of living systems to do this. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, that it, all of it, I, as I said, throughout, I kept seeing these places where you were, you, it was kind of a, a yin and yang in the book of think about this and consider this you know, at the same time. Um, towards the end, what I, what I found so, so helpful, and I'm sure – readers of your book will will also find it helpful 
the two places for me were where you had the five questions for to ask yourself um, when you're embracing change, but then also you had these uh, tools for developing rugged flexibility. And I, I just want to mention to you uh, the one question uh, for me that I, I, I really had to think about is that and it, it had uh, to do with uh, thinking about aligning, maybe it was more about your tools, but uh, uh, aligning, aligning what you think or what you're experiencing uh, with reality. Uh, so not having these big gaps between um, what appeared to be what what you want and what reality is, or your expectations and, and reality. That's right. And, and so I know what it was. It was you said frequently update your expectations to match reality. And the reason I had to spend some time thinking about that, because I was thinking, so does this mean that you accept what is and not try to change it at times? What, what is your advice around that? Because that one really made me stop and think about what you were saying. Yeah, so there's this offhand equation that psychologists like to use, which is that your, your mood at any given time is a function of your reality minus your expectations. So if your expectations for something are a lot better than the thing, you're not going to feel great. And by definition, change is situations shifting in a way that don't meet our predictions, that don't meet our expectations. And mm-hmm. so often we hold on to what we thought was going to happen instead of what is happening. And in the short term, it feels good. We engage in some motivated reasoning, some magical thinking. But in the long term, it actually sets us back because we're not working on the thing that actually needs working on. So mm-hmm. the easy example to give is an athlete that is in the middle of a big training cycle and they get injured. Well, they weren't expecting to get injured. They, keep, they want to keep going on with their training, what they had planned, you know. But if they do that, they're just going to make that injury worse. So they've got to update their expectations for reality, which is, hey, I pulled my hamstring. I need, to, I need to dial things back. I need to take a couple of days off. Same thing with an organization. I mean, how often do organizations, like, have this sunk cost fallacy where they spend all this time planning for something, and then, boom, the environment shifts. They had an expectation. They had a prediction. They had a plan. But then it changes. And nimble organizations are really good about recognizing that, hey, we have to adapt and we have to meet the moment. But so many organizations fall prey to this because they cling to what they thought reality would be instead of what reality is. Ah, yes, yes. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. And one last thing. I know uh, we're just about out of time, but I do want to get this in. Uh, the question, I, I just looked at, uh, looked it up, and uh, the question that I thought was, that really resonated with me too, was question number four you had, how might you use your core values, the rugged and flexible boundaries of your identity to help you navigate the challenges in your life? I wanted to just say something about core values that um, I do this exercise a lot of times with organizations that I'm, I'm consulting with and uh, trying to help um, either there at the beginning of developing mission statements, vision statements, or they've been around for a long time and they're trying to get a team together. But starting with the individual, a lot of times I go through this exercise. You may have used it before. It's called values cards. So you have them 
uh, identify what they think their core values are. And then um, what I find, though, is when I ask people to raise their hands if they've ever taken just the 10 minutes or 15 minutes that we took to think about what their core values are. And most of the time, if there's anyone, there's only two or three people out of rooms of dozens that say that they have considered their core values. And I just find that to be fascinating, particularly among leaders that really pay attention to what your core values are. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head. I think that, you know, oftentimes core values just exist as posters on a wall. Then they're essentially worthless. Like, where core values are helpful is when something changes and the path forward is uncertain and there's ambiguity and, and, and there's no script. Well, you always have your core values to fall back on. You can say, hey, what are my core values? And then how would I act in alignment with them? Mm-hmm. But if you don't know those things deeply, then, then they don't serve that purpose. But I view them yeah. as a compass. You know, we're all as leaders and as humans walking these unpredictable paths full of change. And our core values, those serve as our compass. They keep us, they keep us on the right track. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, so, listen, I so appreciate you taking time. I know this is a busy time for you. Again, congratulations on your new book. For those of you who might have joined us late, Uh, This is Brad Stolberg talking about his new book just came out this week, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. So, Brad, I want to give you an opportunity in these closing seconds, uh, any places, social media handles you want to share, because I'm sure there are people that want to follow, cheer you on, and and be supporters of your work. Tell us where they might see you and, and reach out to you. I'm most active on Instagram, where my handle is at Brad Stolberg. And um, then the best way to dive deep into the work is to get the book, Master of Change, and it's available wherever books are sold. So I want to thank you, Dr. Perkins, for taking such an interest in my book and in the work and inviting me on your show tonight. Well, glad to have you and just wishing you the best in all that you're doing. And just uh, if there's ever anything that you want to pass along and that I can share with my students and this audience. Don't hesitate to do so. So until I hear from you again, go well, stay well.